Take your Bibles if you have them this morning and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, as we continue to ask ourselves, what in the world is God doing? Last week we had the opportunity to uh, begin this series and we're going to be looking at it throughout the month of November and I hope that you will find it a help as you look into the world around you and often see things that to be quite honest are a little puzzling that are a little mysterious that are often misunderstood and so this morning we want to continue thinking our way through the book of Habakkuk and asking ourselves, what in the world is God doing? Well, the first thing we said last week is that God's ways are often mysterious. Habakkuk said, God, I keep praying, violence, injustice, sin, uh, trouble with the rulers, uh, all of these things going on, and the more I pray, the worse it gets. The more I pray, the more violence there seems to be. And he recognized that God's ways are often mysterious. He sometimes seems unusually inactive. Sometimes it appears that God is doing nothing. Lots of years ago, over 40 years ago now, I made a call to Dr. Warren Wiersbe about a friend of mine who was doing some things that he shouldn't do. We were in college and I was trying to figure out how to help him without just turning him in. And so I was praying, so I just one day thought, I'll just call Dr. Wearsby up and ask him. Didn't dawn on me, you probably shouldn't do that, but I dialed his number and at the time he was at Back to the Bible in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he answered his home phone. And I talked to him for a few minutes. And at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I've been talking to him, I've been praying for him, and Dr. Wearsby, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. And he reminded me of this, that God is often working when it doesn't appear that he is at all, so don't give up. You got some kids that aren't following the Lord? Keep praying. Keep ministering to them. Got some family members that don't know Jesus? Keep praying for them. Keep talking to them. You never know what Jesus is doing, what the Spirit is doing in their hearts. And so we keep praying because God's ways are often mysterious. He sometimes seems unusually inactive. He sometimes answers in unusual ways. When Habakkuk said, Lord, what's going to happen? How are you going to straighten up the mess in Jerusalem? And he says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. We'll talk more about that this morning. And they're going to come in, and I'm going to use them as my instrument of divine discipline. Not only does he answer in unusual ways, he sometimes utilizes unusual instruments. And we'll talk more about that this morning. And then we said that God's ways are often misunderstood by his children and by the world at large. Often we look and we think we know what God is doing, but we might be totally wrong. We might think that God works in a certain way, always, but we find out that God is not confined to one course of action or one way of doing something. And the world doesn't understand that God's at work at all. Many of them ignore him, even if they give lip service to him. Many out and out defy him. And yet God, so the God is often misunderstood. And then we finally said that God's ways, though, are always masterful. 
that God's history is under his divine control. He says to Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 1 through to 11, I am doing a work that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. God is doing a work because God is in control, divine control. His divine control and history follows his divine plan and follows his divine timetable. Indeed, all history is really his story. God is working out his purpose and his plan in the ages. Well, this morning we want to look at the second section of the book of Habakkuk, and that is in chapter 1 in verse 11 through 2-1. We want to listen as Habakkuk asks the question, why in the world would you do it that way, God? And then note the four steps he took. But let's begin by reading God's word to us this morning, beginning Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 11. Then shall he, or verse 12, excuse me. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art a purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? And makest men as the fish of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Father, as we come this morning, we do indeed ask for your help. I pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds and our wills to your word this morning. May you speak through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through your messenger, and may each of us hear what the Spirit saith to the church this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. As we listen this morning to Habakkuk, we hear him ask, in essence, this question. Why in the world would you do it that way, God? Why in the world would you take those wicked Chaldeans, Babylonians, why would you use them to discipline your children? We'll talk more about why he asked that as we go along. The first thing we see when we come to something we can't understand, when God is doing something in a way that doesn't make sense to us, the first thing we need to do is we need to stop and talk to God. That's what Habakkuk did. He stopped and talked to God. 
Sometimes when we get discouraged or aren't sure what God is doing, we want to run and talk to everybody else. We want to ask everybody else what they think, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the place to start is with God. And instead of saying, well, I don't know what God's doing, so I'm going to look for, we go to him. Habakkuk starts in verse 12 with saying, Art thou not from everlasting, O God? He starts with God. He doesn't start with the latest commentary or the latest counselor or the latest radio program, but he starts with God. And that's where we need to start. When God brings into our lives things that we do not understand, things that we cannot figure out, things that we did not expect and would not want, we need to first stop and talk to God. And then secondly, secondly, (laughs) he restated the basic biblical principles. He restated the basic biblical principles. Every once in a while I hear someone say something really wrong. They'll say something like this, I'm not interested in theology, I just love Jesus. Well, you can't really love the Jesus of the Bible if you don't have some theology. Now, the problem is when we think of theology, we think of seminarians, often called cemeterians, because they're high and dry. That's not their purpose. That's not what they're supposed to be. Theology is simply the study of God. It is simply understanding what we can understand about God. I had to pick on Paul Weaver. Paul Weaver sent me a text this week, and he said, Pastor Don, here's a verse that might help you for all those three or 400 books that you have on God. And he quoted a verse that said, The secret that things belong unto God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we might obey them. And so I didn't answer him back because I was going to pick on him in public today. But I was simply going to say this, that that's true. There are some things that God doesn't reveal, but I'm still working on the things that he has revealed. I believe it was Mark Twain who once said, someone said to him, uh, you know, there's lots of things in the Bible I don't understand. Those are the secret things of God. To which he supposedly quipped, it's the things I understand that bother me. (laughs) Well... I hope as we grow in the Lord, we recognize there's always more and more that we can understand as we consider and as we study and reflect and think upon the person of God. And so he restated the basic principles. Notice what verse 12 says again. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Notice, first of all, he says God is everlasting. That is that God sees all and he knows all from way back before you and way ahead after you. God knows it all. He sees it all. God is everlasting. Of course, this is a rhetorical question, and in the Hebrew, it expects a yes answer. Of course, God 
is everlasting. Of course, God has no beginning and again. So I don't understand that. Join the club. Neither do I. But God says that he has no beginning and no end, that he is from everlasting to everlasting. And so when Habakkuk can't understand what God is about to do, the first thing he says is, I have remembered that God knows all and sees all. Nothing in the past, the present, or the future has escaped him. He understands all things because he is everlasting. Secondly, he said that God is holy. Oh, holy, my holy one. God is holy. He can do no wrong. It's impossible, the scripture says, for God to lie. It is impossible for God to sin. God is holy. He is above and beyond in a class by himself, unique in the fact that he alone is perfect, that he alone is always righteous in every situation and in every decision and decree he makes. God is holy. God is everlasting. God is holy. Number three, God is faithful. God will keep his promises. Notice what he says. We will not die. Now, there are some Hebrew variants that might suggest that it says you will not die, but it seems like the best translation here is the Masoretic text, which says we will not die. In other words, God has made a covenant with Israel. And the word that he uses here is the word Yahweh, which is the word of the, which is the name of the God of the covenant who stays faithful to his promises. God keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. And so Habakkuk can say with great certainty, I know this can't mean the end of us because you've made certain promises. Back in Genesis chapter 12, you made a promise to a man named Abraham whom you called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And when he came and first to Haran and then into the promised land, you called him and you told him that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he brought that and he continues that on through scripture, of course. But Habakkuk understands that. He understands that God is a loyal faithful God that his loving kindness or his steadfast love never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is everlasting. God is holy. God is faithful. God is love. He will discipline as he promised. He says, you are bringing these people for correction. You are bringing them, and our text says judgment, but the idea is that of discipline. For whom the Lord loved, what? He disciplines everyone. If the Lord loves you, there should be some discipline in your life. If you love your children, you will discipline them, not because you hate them, but because you love them. As I said, I often said to my kids when I was growing up and I would get ready to discipline them, I would say, I'd love you too much to let you keep acting that way. Now, they didn't get that at the time. All they got was, you know, the discipline. <laughs> but it's what God does. God loves us too much to let us continue in our sin. 
God loves us too much to let us continue to disobey him if we are his children. And if we are disobeying God, and if we are continuing in our sin, and the Spirit of God is not chastening us, and the Spirit of God is not correcting us, then something's wrong. Indeed, the apostle said we need to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith, prove your own selves. In other words, he's simply saying, it. where's the evidence? If you are a child of God and you've gone 20 years, or if you report to be a child of God and you've gone for 20 years or 30 years without obeying God and without paying any attention to God, I'd want to ask the question, do I really know him as my father? Is Jesus really my Savior? Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to chasten us and to correct us and to grow us. And so God is faithful. He will keep his promises. He's Yahweh, God of the covenant. God is love. He will discipline us as he promised he would his children. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens every one. And then God is trustworthy. He says, oh, mighty God. And in the Hebrew, it actually is, oh, mighty rock. We sing the song, Jesus is a rock of my salvation. It talks about something that's strong, something that's trustworthy. It talks about a ledge where I can be and where I am protected and where I am provided safety. God is trustworthy. He is our rock. Jesus said to Peter one day, thou art Peter, a small stone, but I say upon this rock. And I know some think that's the faith of Peter, but I think that Jesus is talking about himself. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. He is the rock. The Old Testament picture of the rock is that God is the rock over and over throughout the Old Testament. And so we see that God is everlasting, God is faithful, God is love. God is trustworthy. So when we ask ourselves, why is God doing it that way? Why is God doing that? The first thing we do is start and talk to God about it. The second thing we do is stop and restate the biblical principles. Remind ourselves of who God is, what he's like, what he's promised to remind ourselves of his holiness, his faithfulness, his love, his trustworthiness, and his everlasting wisdom. Restate the biblical principles. And then the third thing that Habakkuk did was he attempted to apply the principles to the problem. He said, okay, I know this is true about God. Now let's see how that's going to fit with what's happening. And so let's read those t- that text again. First of all, in verses 13 and 14, we read this. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he. 
and make us men as the fish of the sea, as the creeping, well, let's stop there, verse 13. The very first thing he said, why would God use a people of so great iniquity? Do you understand what he's saying? He said, hey, we got problems. No question about that, God. But these people really got problems. We're sinners, Lord, clearly. But these people are the worst sinners around. How is it that you can take people, that you who are holy, that you whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin and to look upon evil without judgment, how is it that you can use them to discipline your people? How is it that you can use these great sinners to discipline those you love? That was his first question. Why would God use a people of so great iniquity? Then notice in verses 14 and 15, it says, The man that is more righteous than he, and maketh men as the fish of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them, they take up all of them with the angle, they catch them in their net, and they gather them in their drag, therefore they rejoice and are glad. First of all, why would God use a people of so great iniquity? And next, why would God use a people of so great injustice? He says that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are just like someone out fishing. And they just keep reeling the fish in. And they throw out their nets, and they put out their drag nets, and they just keep bringing more and more fish without any regard to the life of the fish or the cares of the fish or the concerns of the fish. They don't see people as people. They just see them as someone to be conquered and someone to do their will and someone to supply their wealth. He said, God, how can you use a people of so great injustice? How can you use a God? uh, How can you use people who have no concern and no care for anyone but themselves and use them to discipline your people. And then notice verse 16 and 17. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Simply saying, why would God use a people of so great idolatry and remember who their god is their own strength might makes right the golden rule those with the gold rule and we live in a world where iniquity and injustice and idolatry abound. And sometimes God chooses to use those very great sinners to correct us, to discipline us, to shape us, to mold us, to grow us. And in the midst of it, we might ask ourselves, why God, why are you doing it that way? Habakkuk couldn't figure it out. 
he scratched his theological head and said, it doesn't make sense. Why would God allow that? I love him. We love him. Oh, we're not perfect. We have a lot of problems, but we're nowhere near as bad as those people. And yet, interestingly enough, if you do just a little reading, you find that the people of Jerusalem were great sinners, great iniquity doers, that there was great injustice, and that there was great idolatry. Oh, no, they still went to the temple. They still claimed to be monotheistic, one God only, the God of Yahweh. But you remember what Jesus said? They honored me with their lips, but what? Their heart was far from me. I mean, most of us today aren't going to bow down to some shrine in our house. But we have to be careful because the people of this world serve the gods of this world. Money, fame, health, body, pleasure, profit. So many other things. And the very things that Habakkuk struggled with because of the wickedness of the Chaldean were the very things that his own people were doing. And so he says, God, I, I still don't get it. I'm not saying we're perfect, but wow, these people are really, 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 really bad people. And how is it that you can use them? You who are too pure to look upon evil without judging it. How is it that you can use them to discipline us? So when God's doing something and you don't understand why he's doing it the way he's doing it, First of all, stop and talk to God. Secondly, stop and restate the biblical principles. What do you know about God? Because he hasn't changed. Number three, take those principles and try to apply them to the problem. And Habakkuk says, I don't see how you could use so great people, uh, such a great people of iniquity, of injustice, and idolatry. And so he moved on to the fourth and final step. We find that in verse 1. So he says this, verse 17, just for the context, shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations. He says, in effect, shall they not just keep going until there's nobody left? And then this is what he says. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Step number four, he took his still unsolved problem to God and waited for his, that is God's, 
answer. He says, I'm going to climb upon the tower like a watchman, and I'm going to take my stand, and watching and waiting, I'm going to see what God will say and how I'm going to respond, interestingly enough, when he reproves me. First of all, he waited intentionally. I will stand. He didn't say, I can't figure it out. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I think's right because certainly God's not making any sense. He didn't say, I'm going to go ask 14 people what they think. I know I've shared, I'm not sure if with the whole group before, but I was walking one day at the church and, uh, in um, Laporte, Indiana, and I didn't normally answer the phone when I was walking in the gym, but for some reason that day I decided to answer it. So I answered, and this guy asked me, he said, you know, my girlfriend and I, uh, we really love each other, and we're going to get married, and we're Christians, but you know, uh, we're not going to get married for a month or two, but since we really love each other, is it okay if we go ahead and sleep together? And I said, well, the Bible is very clear on that. The answer is no. And so we talked for a few minutes, and I kind of reiterated what the Bible said, And he said, well, I think I'll call another pastor and see what he says. (laughs) That's not what Habakkuk did. Habakkuk said, that still doesn't make sense to me, God, but I'm going to wait for your answer. I'm going to trust that you have an answer. He said, I will wait intentionally. And secondly, he waited expectantly and see what he will say. God will answer in his time and in his way. He said, I'm willing to wait. I'm going to watch, and I'm going to wait. And the picture here of someone who climbs the stairs or climbs the ladder to get up to the watchtower, and he's going to stay there, and he's going to stay alert, and he's going to wait until the answer comes. He's going to get above the problem, as it were, and not get drowned in the quagmire of the things he doesn't understand, but rather he's going to climb that tower and he's going to wait on God for his answer in his time. When things are going on in your life that you don't understand why God is doing it that way, you need to wait on God. You need to wait on God for his answer. And if the original answer isn't the answer you want, don't call someone else up and look for another answer. He says, wait on God. Let's talk about waiting just a moment. First of all, God may answer through his word. Read it. I am amazed how many times when I have a question about something God is doing, I keep reading his word and the answer comes. God speaks to us through his word. It's not a time to give up Bible reading. It's a time to double down on Bible reading. Number two, he may answer through his spirit. Sometimes God does prompt us, but be sure that your promptings is in line with his word. Someone told me once, Pastor, I know the Bible says this, but God prompted me to do this. And I said, no, he didn't because God's never going to prompt you to do something that's contrary to his word. Something, someone may be prompting you, 
probably the world, the flesh, or the devil, but it's not God. He may answer through circumstances, but again, check the circumstances with the Word of God. God never tells us anything that is in discordance with his word. I had someone tell me one time, God told me it's okay to marry someone who's not a Christian. I said, God never told you that. God's word says, do not be unequally yoked together. And at the minimum, it means that the other person needs to be a believer. I believe that's the minimum, not the maximum. Not, okay, we check that box, we're okay. That's just the starting point. He may answer through his word, read it. He may answer through his spirit, walk in the spirit and check any promptings with his word. He may answer through circumstances, pay attention and recheck with his word. If you find yourself in a situation you don't understand what God is doing or why God is doing what he is doing the way he's doing it. That's kind of a tongue twister. Wait on God. Climb your tower. Get above the problem. Climb the watchtower and wait. Wait intentionally. Wait expectantly. And so this morning in conclusion... And our response, notice I left a little blank space. That's because when I listen to a message, I always want to write my response to the message. What is God saying to me today? Just a couple things about, we said stop and talk to God, restate the basic biblical principles, attempt to apply the principles to the problem, take any still unsolved problem to God and wait for his answer. Waiting requires time. Are you willing to take the time? Some of us want to do something now, even if it's wrong. We just want to do something. We're activists. We'd like to do something. We're not good at waiting. But Habakkuk said, I will wait on the Lord. Waiting requires work. Are you willing to put in the effort? It's not fun being up in the watchtower by yourself waiting on God. Looking, watching, carefully considering, listening. Are you willing to put in the effort? Waiting requires quietness. Are you willing to be be still and listen? Some of us aren't very good at being quiet. Some of us know who we are. We like to talk. But waiting requires quietness. Are you willing to be still and listen? And finally, waiting requires perseverance. Are you willing to stay at the task? You know, when you're on the watch or you're on duty, you, you don't say about halfway through, well, it doesn't look like much happening here tonight. I think I'll just go ahead and go home. You might do that once if you're on guard duty in the service. 
Your next duty will probably be behind some bars. And waiting on God, sometimes it's a long wait. And God may not answer you in one year. He may not answer you in five years. He may not answer you in 10 years. But in his time and his way, he will answer you. And the question is, will you continue to trust him even when you don't understand him? Will you continue to rest in his promises even when you don't see them being fulfilled in your life? the moment waiting requires being open to correction notice what Habakkuk said and I will see what I will say when God speaks to me and how I will answer him when I am reproved interesting enough Habakkuk already says I must be missing something here because he knows God is what perfect that God is holy, that God is just, that God is loyal, that God is righteous, and all the other things that we've talked about and many more. And so he says, I'm waiting for an answer, God, but just so you know, I'm ready to be corrected. Little different than the attitude of Job by the middle of the book of Job. I demand right, because if I could talk to God, he would see that I am perfectly good, perfectly right. That's not Habakkuk's view. Habakkuk's view is, God, I'm sure I'm misunderstanding something here. I'm ready to be reproved. I'm ready to be corrected. It doesn't talk about something harsh, but someone who tells us what we need to know, who helps us by correcting us. So waiting requires time. It requires work. It requires quietness, it requires perseverance, and it requires being open to correction. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there something in your life that doesn't make sense? Is there something that God is doing that you can't quite figure out? Is there someone you've been praying for and God hasn't yet answered that prayer? Is there a situation in which you've been asking God to intervene and he hasn't yet intervened? You may be asking yourself this morning, what in the world is God doing or why is God doing it that way? I ask you this morning, stop. Will you wait on God for the answer? Will you stop and talk to God? Will you restate the biblical principles? Will you try to take those biblical principles and apply them to the problem? And if you don't get the answer, are you willing to climb your watchtower and wait on God? Let's pray together.